Hey everybody, real quick heads up before we get started today. Once we're done with the usual 30-odd minute program, we are also going to have a bonus segment with a lot of extra questions we just couldn't quite fit into our broadcast time slot. Today's show is going to be all about the science of coronavirus, so if that is something that you're into, stick around. We have got extras. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Hope you enjoy, and on with the show. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. The tech sector being not just one of the greatest creators of wealth, but one of the greatest creators of wealth for the 1%. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. There's already positive change that's going on uh, within organized sports. We're reducing this chance of second injuries. There is no 100% secure website. There is no 100% security for your system. This is KCBS In-Depth. We've had a few months now to get to know this novel coronavirus, and because it is new, there's been a lot to learn. How it infects people, how it changes over time, and just how deadly it might be. I'm Keith Manconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, we'll be checking in with some of the Bay Area scientists who have been looking into these questions to hear from them what they've learned since this pandemic began. Let's welcome those scientists on. We are welcoming, first of all, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, who will be familiar to many KCBS listeners. She is, of course, the chief of infectious diseases at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, and she's also a professor of epidemiology at Stanford's School of Medicine. Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you so much, Keith. And uh, thank you as well. We are welcoming also onto the program Professor Marm Kilpatrick. He studies infectious diseases at UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Welcome to the program as well, Marm Kilpatrick. Thank you. Good to be with you. So the reason that I wanted to have this program is we did a very similar discussion uh, for KCBS In-Depth back in February, but uh, I don't need to tell the both of you, the the science here is changing so fast, and uh, a lot of what we discussed then is old news, old science, and not up to date. So I thought it would be a good idea to do another one of these programs to uh, get our listeners up to date with the very latest science, the very latest picture for what this virus is looking like and uh, the various risks that are associated with it. So uh, first of all, the first thing I wanted to do to get our audience a little bit more acquainted with your work, wondering if you could both briefly tell us a little bit about one of the top questions that you have been focusing on over the last couple of months uh, in the course of your research. Let's start with you, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, again with uh, Stanford School of Medicine. Yes, well, I'm a uh, physician scientist, and I'm also an infectious disease epidemiologist and a pediatrician. Um, So most of my work is really focused on trying to understand the clinical and epidemiologic implications of this infection in uh, specific uh, patients as well as in populations at large. So a lot of the work has been trying to understand uh, what the virus does to individuals, how does it uh, persist in people, how does it how is it transmitted, and importantly, how can we prevent further infections, how can we prevent uh, pre- uh, uh, transmission of disease to others, and how can we treat existing infections. And just as a very quick follow-up, you know, when we did have this program back in February, one of the most unnerving things about 
this whole pandemic was the fact that there was so much that still wasn't unknown. Would you say that over the last couple of months, your feelings about this virus have, uh, do, do, do you feel like there have been hopeful signs or do you feel like in general it's mostly been bad news? What's the trajectory been? Well, you know, I tend to be an optimist. I work in global health, so I see some settings that are quite uh, tr- difficult, but we always work uh, to to be optimistic and positive. I also work in vaccine research. So to me, I I think there's always a solution. We just have to figure it out. So I think we found out a lot of important things about this virus, and it's going to lay the platform and uh, for us to build out our development of therapeutics, uh, potentially vaccines, as well as epidemiologic and public health strategies to prevent people from uh, getting infected. So I do see that there's a, a rapid amount of information, as you indicated, that should be helpful to us. Um, we also know that communication has been pretty good around the world and technology has made a big difference for us too. So I think people are getting messages out there pretty quickly and we want to make sure those messages are accurate and helpful. All right. And uh, that's some of the work that we're going to be doing on the program today, getting out accurate and helpful information. Professor Marm Kilpatrick, again with UC Santa Cruz, what has been one of the main questions that your research has been looking into? We've been trying to understand just how much activity in our community is possible without leading to increased transmission. So as I'm sure all of your listeners are aware, uh, the lockdown that we're all under now is putting an enormous strain on the communities. Um, and so the question is, what businesses can we open without leading to rampant transmission occurring again? And obviously that uh, influences how we'll move forward. Yeah, very important questions as we do approach a lifting of some of these restrictions here in the Bay Area and uh, throughout California. All right, well, let's uh, tick through some of the major questions, some of the major other questions that we have been trying to get a handle on since the pandemic began. I think one of the most important ones and also one of the most difficult ones to wrap our head around is the question of fatality rate. How fatal is this disease? How likely are you to be one of the people who unfortunately uh, is killed by this disease if you contract it? And uh, there's a lot of reasons why that is a very difficult question. So before we get to the answer, I mean, it feels like, you know, this disease has been around for a while now. We should we should have very solid answers at this point. But Professor Kilpatrick, maybe you could start us off with why is this such a difficult number to pin down the fatality rate? Sure. Let me just say one thing first, and that is that many of your listeners will have heard many, many, many reports of estimates of the deadliness of this disease, um, often quoted in the uh, single digits of percents, so 4%, 8%, things like that. And what those numbers are normally referring to are case fatality rates or case fatality ratios. And that's simply the number of people that die given that they are cases or show up at a hospital and become test and are tested for the virus and are shown to be positive. In contrast, what we all actually want to know is the chance that we actually die given that we get infected. Um, and we often refer to that number as the infection fatality ratio rather than the case fatality ratio. And those can often be very different numbers. And the infection fatality ratio, the chance that we die given we get infected, is often much, much lower. And so the reason that that's quite difficult to estimate, the, the thing we actually all want to know, is because we often miss many of the more milder or even asymptomatic cases. And that means that our estimates of the fatality of a disease are usually often higher than what we actually believe is the real infection fatality ratio until we can actually get a real good handle on many of the milder or asymptomatic cases. Right. And so if the if the fatality rate is the uh, just the, the ratio between the number of people who die over the total number of people who have actually caught this disease, if our 
if our understanding of how many people have caught this disease is inaccurate and too small, that would make that ratio look a lot higher and uh, more bleak than it actually is. And so that's been uh, a struggle since the pandemic began, uh, really getting a handle on who exactly has this, how many people have gotten it. Uh, Some good news, though, is in the last couple of weeks, we have uh, gotten online some antibody tests, and uh, that's beginning to give us a better picture of who has had it, because those don't just tell us, uh, well, importantly, they tell us who has had it in the past. Even if somebody doesn't have it right now, we can tell if they've had it in the past, and that's good for the population studies. I know that uh, that's been a focus of your work as well, uh, Professor Kilpatrick. Uh, What have we been learning over the last couple of weeks now that these tests are online? So we've learned two things, and let me say that there was one um, moderately rigorous estimate of the infection fatality ratio um, before the recent serious surveys, and that came from a unique uh, set of data, which was a population in which most people were tested, and that was that Princess cruise ship that was stuck off the coast of Japan, where they tested almost all the passengers on the boat and could identify most of the actual infections, including those that were mild or asymptomatic, um, and determine what fraction of those people went on to die. And uh, a couple studies that used that data estimated an infection fatality rate of approximately 0.5 to 0.6%. And the interesting thing is that now we're starting to see some serological studies, and the ones that have been done so far um, in places where there's been substantial transmission, which, uh, so for example, in New York, there was a recent serological survey um, and when we say serological, just to uh, clarify, we're talking about the tests of antibodies. Yes, sorry. So there was a recent study that looked at the fraction of people that have antibodies um, from exposure to this virus. And if we do these kinds of studies in places where a substantial fraction of the population has been exposed, then issues with tense test quality or sensitivity and specificity, simply the chance of false positives or false negatives, is lower, although still not uh, uh, irrelevant. Um, data from those places suggest similar estimates for the infection fatality ratio. So the data from New York suggests a value of approximately 0.8% from New York City. And again, that number is a point estimate. The actual uncertainty around that um, is probably somewhere between uh, 0.3 or 4% and as high as a little over 1%. Um, but that's actually quite in line with the early estimates from the cruise ship that I mentioned before. So most of the data that I've seen so far points to a chance of dying given infection around uh, you know half a percent in there. But let me clarify that that estimate is for a population, not for an individual. And for an individual, the actual chance of dying given infection varies enormously from very, very low numbers for young people to much higher numbers for older individuals, and especially those with comorbidities. All right. So uh, we got a little bit of a range there from uh, Professor Kilpatrick. Uh, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, what, is that basically what you're seeing? Uh, are, are we starting to zero in on uh, a range for this fatality rate that's looking somewhere between 0.6 and, and 1% or some, somewhere in that range? Well, as you heard, it really depends on who's being tested, right? So if you look at the data from China um, and a lot of the modeling from the cruise ships and other data, we were estimated initially that the fatality rate would be somewhere on the order of 1%. And to just to put that in, in mind, that is 10 times higher than the rate that we see for influenza. So it's quite a substantial increase, but it's a lot lower than what we've seen, for example, for SARS and MERS, which are other viruses related to this particular virus. So um, 1% doesn't sound like a big number, but it, it you can see what the impact has been in the popu- in the population at large. So what we're seeing here, we're actually doing is starting a new study to look at the antibody prevalence in the San Francisco Bay Area um, so we can get a better estimate of who's really being infected and a better sense of that base number of people. But um, the estimates are really, again, based on who's coming into the hospital, et cetera. 
And we know that, for example, um, we think that the risk of, of, of death is really um, related to things like age or underlying disease, as you heard before. Um, the famous Italian study was done of over 3,000 patients who died in Italy. And among those people, virtually all of them had underlying uh, diseases. So um, whether or not that reflects a degree of deaths who came to attention at the hospital versus people who might have died outside the healthcare system or died without a diagnosis of COVID will remain to be identified. And we're uh, going to be looking further in uh, hospitalization records as time goes on to understand whether we're missing a number of people who may have died from this disease. So the true scope of the inspection is not known, but I think overall you're correct that I think the rate is somewhere on the order of, again, uh, you know, 0.7% to say about 1%. Again, pretty high compared to our usual influenza, but uh, but um, still something that, that gives us confidence that we can start to understand who's getting infected and how can we get that rate down. Hmm. All right. I have one quick follow-up question for that point. But real quick, I want to remind our listeners that they are listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today in the program, we're taking a step back from the news cycle to catch our breath and take a closer look at what scientists have been discovering about this new coronavirus. Speaking today to two of those scientists, first of all, Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, an infectious disease expert with Stanford, and Professor Marm Kilpatrick, who also studies infectious diseases. He's with UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. So quick follow-up to that, Dr. Maldonado. Given the range that is looking increasingly likely, what does that tell us about the dangers of reopening? Is this seeming to be a more dangerous proposition to reopen, or should we be feeling more confident based on the data that we're getting back? Well, I think that's really separate from the death data, really. What we need to understand uh, truly is the transmission rate. And as you know, the transmission rate will change over time as we uh, institute behavioral and non-behavioral containment measures. Um, so this concept of uh, herd immunity has been brought up. And right now, the only way we can develop herd immunity is to become infected, which we really want to avoid since we don't have a vaccine yet. Um, and so the other way to induce a, a surrogate or a, a, a substitute for herd immunity would be to separate people out. So right now we're under drastic containment because we think the epidemic is still very active. So much like a wildfire, you want to put the wildfire out before you can start really reaching out and uh, trying to contain other areas off. Theoretically, you would like to contain the wildfire and look at the embers around to keep those down. Um, but it's it's uh, it's right now we're in the the tail end of the wildfire. I'd say it's probably on the you know somewhere at the back end of high end of containment. But then we're going to need to move forward and understand what the baseline prevalence of infection continues to be as the, as this uh, dies down, because it won't go down to zero right away. And to, as long as we have the capacity to do that in our public health departments and our and our other healthcare facilities, track infections and make sure we track them down make sure people are self-isolated and their contacts are notified as well. And containment, meaning things like masking and uh, uh, good hand hygiene, keeping people from large group gatherings um, and social distancing will also add to our ability to keep infection rates down so that eventually we hope that the virus 
infection rate will drop to, to zero. That would be the idea. If it doesn't drop to the zero, then we're going to need to continue to have some containment measures until we do see that um, that happen um, or until we have a vaccine or therapeutics, ther drugs that can actually potentially help reduce the level of virus shedding from one per uh, and transmission from one person to another. Mm. So Professor Maldonado brought up the subject of transmission, and that is, of course, another area that we've been trying to learn as much as we can. Uh, early on in the virus, we didn't know whether it was mainly transmitted on surfaces. We didn't know whether it was mainly transmitted in the air. Uh, it took us a long time to establish asymptomatic transmission, that is, people spreading it without showing any symptoms that they've contracted COVID-19. Uh, suppose I'll let, uh, let's have Marm uh, Kilpatrick again with UC Santa Cruz start this conversation uh, briefly, if you could uh, summarize what have uh, we learned so far about how transmission works for this virus and uh, what are we still learning? So I think the the dominant mechanisms of transmission that we're aware of now appear to be linked to relatively close contacts. So there's been a large number of studies uh, analyzing uh, cases and then the people that those people have gone on to infect. And all the studies that I have seen highlight um, close contact as being a key part of that story. And so most transmission occurs within households. Um, often within uh, when people are traveling together in transportation um, and in other kind of close contact settings like that. There are relatively few um, identified transmission links between people that have occurred outside. There are a few, but they're uh, when people were relatively close together. Um, so it appears that transmission is much, much more likely when people share very close intimate contact. Um, and that actually provides, I think, good foundations for what activities are most risky and which activities are less risky. And as Dr. Maldonado had said before, I think we want to look forward and try to limit those activities we know to be high risk um, and then allow more of those activities that are low risk because the, many of those activities are needed to sustain our economies and uh, people's jobs. And just briefly to put a fine point on it, when we're talking about high risk activities, given what you're saying, it sounds like being in a small meeting room with poor ventilation, that would be relatively risky, but being on a uh, a path out in the woods uh, relatively far from the people around us, that would be relatively safe? That's exactly correct. And in fact, in addition to that, there's a few studies that looked at um, individuals that actually had some contact, but not uh, that frequent contact. And that study showed that the numbers of uh, infections that occurred was much, much higher. I think a more, more than an order of magnitude higher in those individuals that had frequent contact as to, compared to just a few contacts. So it does appear that the probability of transmission um, is relatively low if you just have a passing encounter with someone, but much, much higher if you spend significant amounts of time with a person and especially with a person indoor um, in relatively close proximity. Mm. And uh, Dr. Maldonado, as far as the way that this virus is being spread, is there anything that you'd want to add to that picture that we just got? Yeah, so we've been doing tri uh, studies here looking at uh, swabbing uh, people's noses and throats and looking at the amount of virus that we find there and actually looking at household transmission as well. Um, and what we're found is uh, what we found, and this is something that I've really thought from the very beginning, this is really based on what we know about the, it's the rel related viruses. These are viruses that live in the upper respiratory tract. They live in the nose and they live in the throat. Now, they, this virus is mutated to be able to really get down into the lungs as well, but it, the initial infection really is in the nose and throat. So the way I look at it in my own simple way is, this is a large droplet disease, and it is a droplet disease of the nose and throat, mouth, etc. So the way you keep people from getting infected is just to keep your droplets away from other people's faces. Um, whether that means wearing a mask or washing your hands, 
uh, not touching surfaces where droplets may have fallen because we know the droplets contain vi virus that can be viable for some days, hours to days, um, is really gonna be the key here. So absolutely, and I think this idea that it's aerosolized, it's in the air, all of those things are academically and you know theoretically possible. And yes, you can find potentially some virus sitting in the air, uh, but we have yet to identify that as a true source. That is, it's really about droplets falling from people's mouths or noses. And um, as long as we can read, and, and we have found that's been the case in our hospital settings when we've masked people and asked them to stay six feet away, um, wash their hands, keep their hands away from their faces, and uh, not come to work sick, that has worked remarkably well in keeping infections from spreading. And so I know it sounds very simple and, and not uh, high tech, but it's a really effective way to keep people from infecting one another. So when you see people at the beach or you see people running around in clusters, that's really not gonna be the right way to do it. And we need to em emphasize that keeping distances, even though you don't see the droplets, they're definitely there. And, and just to put a fine point on what you were saying right there, so we were hearing a, a moment ago from Dr. Kilpatrick that perhaps when you're outdoors, the rate of transmission is not as quite as high as it's going to be indoors. But you're saying, uh, despite that fact, if you're out on the beach, you should still be keeping your distance from folks that are not a part of your household. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, one of my colleagues was saying, you know, when you're running, you're expelling breath at a pretty rapid high rate of velocity. Yeah. Um, for example, and the other, the opposite is true of children. The young children are not capable of generating enough um, velocity or force to really get droplets too far away. But you still, they're pretty, they're pretty mucusy and don't handle their secretions well. So that's another issue. So it's all about handling droplets and secretions, and how to, and we just need to be very cognizant of that. All right, a lot of really uh, helpful information right there. A uh, lot to wrap our head around, and uh, we are going to get even more in just a second. But one last time, I want to remind our listeners that this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and on the program today, well, every day we learn a little bit more about this new coronavirus. So we are speaking to two Bay Area researchers to get an update on what we've learned so far. We were just hearing a second ago from Dr. Yvonne Maldonado, an infectious disease expert with Stanford. And we are going to hear in a second from Professor Marm Kilpatrick, who once again is with UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and also studies infectious diseases. So for the rest of the program, we are going to take on somewhat smaller questions. I feel like we've taken on the really big questions for the moment. Uh, but I would like to, if uh, we could, try to tick off as many of the smaller questions that folks might have in their head as well, just to uh, make sure that we address as much of that as we can. The first, I want to hand this over to Professor Kilpatrick, the question of, is this a disease that is less transmissible in hot weather? We were given the promise for a number of months that as soon as the hot weather strikes, we are going to be in the clear and we'll probably be able to relax a little bit on all of these restrictions. Uh, Professor Kilpatrick, is that the picture that we're getting at this point, that we will get a relief with the hot weather? So there's, uh, let's say two things. One is, is that we don't know because, of course, that's in the future. But we have two lines of evidence that can provide us some initial answers to the question. So the two lines of evidence are first asking, is there transmission now in places where the temperatures are what we're likely to see in the U.S. in the summertime? And if there's been transmission there, is it any more or less uh, severe than it is here? And those data suggest that there certainly have been very severe epidemics of this disease in many places where it's quite warm and quite humid. And that suggests that uh, it, the summer is simply not going to cause transmission to go down to zero. We're all going to be just fine. So the data on that are, are very, very clear. In addition to that, there have been a number of studies in the lab looking at how well the virus can do in cooler or warmer conditions and more or less humid conditions. 
And those studies, as well as studies on other viruses like this, suggest that the virus does do slightly, um, it survives slightly less well in warmer, more humid conditions. However, when you put those data together with the observations that we have, the data suggests that while there may be a slight reduction in the kind of transmission probabilities in summertime, that's not going to be nearly enough to actually reduce transmission to stop the epidemic. And in contrast, much more important than slight differences in seasonality are going to be differences in the fraction of the population that actually is still susceptible to the disease. And unfortunately, all the data we have now for that suggests that all populations we know of have primarily susceptible individuals. There are no places where we know that most of the population has been infected so far. So all the studies done to look at um, evidence of previous exposure, which allows us to quantify that fraction, all of them suggest that the great majority and sometimes even more than 95% of people are still susceptible. And that means that summer is, um, even if it reduces transmission by a little bit, it's not nearly going to be enough to stop transmission. Yeah, so not quite the get-out-of-jail-free card that we were hoping for, unfortunately. And that just seems to be the theme with this virus, that there are no easy answers here. There are no quick fixes. Uh, Dr. Maldonado, I want to toss another question to you. Before the lockdown went in place, it was a big question for many counties in the Bay Area whether or not the schools should be shut down. And uh, some of the folks that were saying the schools should not be shut down were making the argument that uh, we just don't know if shutting the schools down actually damps down infection. It's a complicated question. Kids are still going to be out. They're still going to be interacting with some people. So closing the schools down, really, what does that change? Have we gotten any kind of a better picture of the relationship between this uh, this virus's spread and uh, children? You know, unfortunately, that's one of the areas, and again, as a pediatrician, it pains me to say this, but we just have not gotten that information yet. And I am actually on a number of uh, calls in the next couple of days where we're really trying to address that issue. It has been difficult for logistical reasons to enroll children in studies, partially because they're not in school right now and you'd have to do household work. And does that really mimic a gathering of kids? We were trying to plan a study in schools, but they shut down before we could do it. So we're trying to go back and identify serum banks, blood banks, where we can identify blood from children to see if there was evidence of transmission. We really don't know. There's evidence, there's very few studies in this area. It looks like um, in one study from France, there was a fairly high rate of infection among adolescents. But the question is really in the young children because every other respiratory virus that I've worked with, really children are very, uh, can widely spread infections. And in many cases, they may not be very sick themselves, but they can actually still spread disease uh, in their families and communities. Um, we don't really know the answer to that right now, so it's hard to say. Um, there are some indications that A, either children aren't getting infected at the same rates for some physiologic reason, that is maybe the virus isn't really attaching to their epithelial, the nose and mouth in the same way as they are in adults, and there's some evidence for that. But Or is it that they're getting infected, but they're just not getting sick? Um, and that's certainly, there are models of other diseases where that can happen with children as well. And so it is critical to know, and unfortunately we don't have that answer, but we're hoping to set up a series of studies very quickly in the next week or so. I think we've been so busy dealing with just some of the basic fundamentals of the disease that we haven't really focused on pop specific populations, but I think it's clear that we need to deal with the school issue for all the reasons that Dr. Kilpatrick mentioned. We really need to know um, whether they're serving as sources of transmission, whether they themselves can get sick. And more, and the other issue is, as we're finding out with young adults, we're finding out that people are not getting very sick, but they have long-term sequelae. That is, people are developing strokes and other evidence of longer-term inflammatory 
uh, uh, complications. And is that going to happen with children as well? We're already seeing that may be the case in a small subset of children around the world. So the, the, so more to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, for a lot of these questions, I, I imagine that that is uh, the best answer that uh, we can have. Well, we are coming up to the end of the program, and I just want to give one final question to each of you, uh, starting with you, Dr. Marm Kilpatrick. So you, you, you are somebody who is really studying the biology of this virus and uh, have been studying how it spreads. Uh, just putting all that we've discussed so far in the program aside for one second, what is the number one thing that you wish that the general public understood better about this pandemic, this virus, and what really we're up against right now? Whew, that's a tough question. Uh, we have so <laughs> many questions, actually, and so many unknowns. And to me, I think the challenge is, is trying to get all the small pieces together to get address the larger question. And so for me, uh, the largest question is, is what can we do to what are the most effective control things that we can do to keep transmission low enough so that we can maximize the amount of activity that our communities and um, can actually uh, sustain without having rampant transmission? And unfortunately, the answer to that isn't that we need to know one bit of information, it's that we need to know more information about 20 or 30 different things. And that's the part that's been so challenging, I think, is that, um, as Dr. Maldonado said, we know some things about some of the stories, but each of the things where you have incomplete understanding, and that really prevents us from having a really strong, being able to make strong predictions or, or really know ahead of time what the effect might be, let's say, of relaxing just a few of the things that are in place for social distancing right now. So, for example, if we keep everything the same and we just open schools, what will the effect of that be? We can make some guesses now, but our understanding is still incomplete enough that we can't make strong predictions about that and really know until it happens. And I think it's really difficult to try to do public health when we we just have uh, informed guesses, but can't really know how something's going to work until we try it. And then, of course, if it doesn't go well, we have to backtrack quite a bit. So I think that's my biggest challenge is just that we there are enough unknowns now and there's an, enough different aspects that matter that really seeing how we move forward is quite challenging. Yeah, it's a it's a puzzle that's still missing a lot of pieces and trying to figure out what the underlying picture is is obviously going to be very tricky. Dr. Maldonado, last uh, question for you. We haven't really talked too much about how this virus uh, affects people's bodies. And obviously that is something that we've been learning a lot as well. You alluded to a, a couple of things in your last answer. I'm wondering uh, just in the, the last uh, 30 seconds or so that we have, if there's anything else that you would add that you think it's important that folks know that we're learning about how this virus affects people and uh, their bodies. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things, I mean, I, I lived through researching the HIV epidemic many years ago. So one of the things I want to be really mindful of for all of all of us is we need to be a really uh, empathetic. We really need to think about all of this infodemic that we have, lots of information coming from lots of places, to really trust our public health agencies, to trust the, the people who do the work, and to really be aware that this is a real disease that's causing real problems. I hear from people, well, I don't have it or I'm not going to get that sick. What's the big deal? We understand that it's a huge economic and social impact, but it's not being done for no reason or it's being done for an important reason. Um, and we want to make sure that people just listen to uh, people like you who are putting out the information out there and really take the simple steps that we need to as we move back into, slowly move back into some semblance of what we had before very carefully and while we try to measure the impact and to be aware that we don't have the answers, but we're working in real time, as you heard Dr. Kilpatrick said, to try to figure those answers out and inform people in a cautious way. 
Um, so keep going to sort of valuable and trusted sources of information uh, to keep uh, keep doing this and to have hope because we will vanquish this. We will get better. We will figure out a way to keep this virus in check um, and uh, and just to keep uh, keep that in mind that people are working very hard, healthcare workers, first responders, scientists, many people to really keep us all safe and healthy. Well, I do appreciate the note of optimism that we're ending on. And uh, I think it is important to get a hopeful message out to folks in this time because there are a lot of people, as you just mentioned, doing a lot of great work that is hopefully going to get us an edge on this historic challenge that we're facing right now. To close things out, just want to mention one last time that we have been speaking to Dr. Yvonne Maldonado. She, once again, is an infectious disease expert with Stanford University, as well as Professor Marm Kilpatrick, who also studies infectious diseases. He's with UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And uh, just as a closing note, I really, I think that this is an important time for gratitude, and you are both doing very important work. So on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to thank you both for being on the show and for the work that you're doing right now. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much, Keith. And thank you, Dr. Kilpatrick, for the work you're doing. Thank you as well. All right. Well, that brief musical interlude was just to signal that we are transitioning to another segment in the show. Uh, Professor Maldonado had to run a very uh, busy doctor at the front line of a lot of this effort. So uh, she had to go. But we are lucky enough to still have on the line Professor Marm Kilpatrick, who, once again, just to reintroduce him, is uh, studies infectious diseases with UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And uh, as I was preparing for this program, there was just a whole lot of questions that I wanted to get to. And obviously, each one of these questions is pretty complicated, so it takes a long time to get through any one of them. So we didn't get to as many as I was hoping, but Professor Kilpatrick has been nice enough and generous enough with his time that he's agreed to stick around with us. This is a segment that's only going to be on the podcast portion of the show, just a little podcast bonus for our listeners. But hopefully some folks out there find this extra information helpful as we're all trying to get our head around exactly what the risks and what the challenges of this pandemic are. I want to start with the question, Professor Kilpatrick, of modeling. We have seen modeling all over the place predicting, of course, modeling using mathematical models that are trying to predict the future. And predicting the future is always going to be difficult. Nobody has a crystal ball. But we have been seeing these predictions all over the place in terms of the number of deaths that we are expecting to see. Uh, Just a few months ago, uh, even the White House had uh, potential deaths in the hundreds of thousands. Other models we were hearing in the millions. Now, it seems like most of the models have converged at much lower numbers, somewhere in the uh, tens of thousands. Uh, I guess just to start off with, uh, as, as with many other things, this is just a really difficult thing to get right. So a great question. So let me be super clear about the one of the main goals and values of mathematical modeling is to explore different scenarios and to ask if we do this, what is the possible or likely outcomes? Whereas if we take another approach, what is the possible outcomes? Um, and, and you characterized it quite well. The early models suggested very high numbers of deaths. Um, a very relatively influential model early on back in March suggested that the US might see uh, over 2 million deaths from this disease. And let me be super clear that that, um, that modeling effort was done assuming that we take no efforts at all really to control this disease. So we call those the do nothing strategy. So if we basically just go on with our lives as if um, nothing is different, like we often do with the flu, um, then how many deaths will there be? And so the predictions from that model, um, while we have not seen that outcome, that's of course doesn't indicate that the model was wrong. It indicates that our public health control efforts have been quite successful. Um, and so the models that have had revised numbers of deaths 
are much, much lower. And that's because they reflect the changes that have occurred through our uh, social distancing efforts and things like that. So uh, moving forward, as we make bottle predictions, we're then trying to take into account these effects that we've had through the control efforts. And, uh, and one of the big challenges in those efforts is that we don't always know exactly what the effects are going to be. So for example, at least in my lifetime, and I think in most of our lifetimes, we have not had entire states do uh, shelter in place orders. And as a result, we don't exactly know what the effects of that will be on transmission. Right. But just to, just to clarify one point, I, I, a lot of those early models that were predicting very high casualty rates, they were supposedly taking the quarantine and uh, social distancing measures, they were supposedly taking those into account. So what were they still missing, despite the fact that they were trying to take those measures into account? Sure. Yeah. So, so good clarification. So the early uh, influential model that I mentioned a minute ago that initially predicted a do-nothing strategy resulting in about 2 million deaths um, also considered some other control strategies. And even with some control strategies in place, they did predict numbers on the order of uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, and the reason that they did, and the reason why those models are actually still, uh, I think, quite consistent with some of the data, is that they uh, examined what would happen over the full course of an epidemic, both in some in, in, uh, initial lockdown phases as well as um, the possibilities of second waves as lockdowns are lifted. And so uh, let me just... Uh, give your readers one quick uh, way to think about this. So disease ecologists often consider what fraction of the population will get exposed to a disease if the disease kind of runs its course until we reach what we call herd immunity or the fraction of the population that's exposed that limits further transmission because most people are immune. And if you look at uh, how many deaths you would see until the disease basically reaches herd immunity, or sorry, excuse me, until the fraction of the population exposed reaches herd immunity, um, and then count the deaths from that, then in fact the numbers um, that came out of some of these early models are still not that far off. Put another way, in almost everywhere we've looked at data, um, we are still very, very early on in the epidemic because most of the fraction, excuse me, most of the population has not yet been exposed. So for example, um, as many of your readers are probably aware, there have been many, many of these studies looking for the fraction of populations that have been exposed through um, what we call serological surveys. And all of those studies suggest that 80% uh, or more are still, uh, have not been exposed. And in many places, it's much higher than that. Something like 95% or more are still susceptible. And that basically means that we're just so early on in the uh, epidemic that we would still see many, many, many more times uh, of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths before this epidemic runs its course, unless, of course, we can get a vaccine and treatments and things like that in place. So now that we do seem to be converging on uh, national numbers in the high tens of thousands, it seems, you know, between 70 and 100,000, it seems to be uh, somewhat consistent with just the reporting that I've seen. I, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I haven't looked into it incredibly deeply. But uh, now that it looks like we're sort of converging on that range, should we be more confident about the numbers that we're getting now than the numbers that we were getting from these models a month or two months ago? Uh, so unfortunately, the answer is that uh, the models that are being put forth now are making assumptions about how well we're doing now. But as soon as we lift some of the restrictions that are in place, then we start to shift back closer towards the do-nothing strategies before. So um, it's quite likely that we won't quite hit the highest levels that we saw before, because I think even if we were to open up all of the normal uh, businesses that we had before, people are still going to hopefully be doing some things to reduce transmission. So washing their hands, doing a little bit of social distancing, maybe wearing masks, these kinds of things. And even those with the rest of our society back to normal would still limit transmission some. So we're likely to be lower than the initial worst case scenario because that actually assumed no limitations on transmission at all. But if we do open societies fully back up to what they were before, including um, large gatherings of people at sporting events or recreational activities like that, then we could actually go 
much closer back to the do-nothing strategies, which do uh, estimate the number of deaths in the high hundreds of thousands. Um, and possibly in the U.S. It would be, I think, between one and two million um, if we go all the way back to that strategy before we get a vaccine. So those um, scenarios are definitely still not out of reach. And they're basically, we're not going to reach them as long as we keep strong measures in place like the social distancing we're doing now or alternative measures that we are trying to pursue. And the most important one that I think it's good for your readers to be aware of, and they've probably heard of it before, is this idea to initially use social distancing to drive down the number of active cases. And then once that number of active cases and infections is low enough, then uh, basically chase down those cases, find the people they might have infected through contact tracing, and then isolate those infected people. And that strategy is possible when the number of cases is relatively low and when testing capacity is high, and when we also have enough contact tracers in place. So when we get those three things together, one, a low number of active infections, two, high, testi high testing capacity, and three, a large team of contact tracers in each region, um, and possibly with the help of digital contact tracing through um, apps on cell phones that many of your readers may have heard of, then we can shift to this alternative strategy where we basically uh, suppress transmission via an active public health effort. And we, if we can do that for a number of months until we get either a therapeutic drug or a vaccine in place, then we can avoid these really, really terrible um, strategies that were highlighted in the early models. Mm. And But just so people don't get their hopes too high, uh, when we talk about contact tracing, this is a very labor-intensive endeavor. I mean, I, I suppose in South Korea, they have uh, phone apps that are helping to track people around. It's unclear whether or not Americans would accept something that intrusive on their phones. So here, we are left with actual people making phone calls, pounding the pavement, trying to physically track where people have been and who they've spoken to. And that's very labor-intensive work. So when we talk about the number of people that we'd need to get the rate of infection down to, we're talking like relatively low numbers. We're talking in, in the thousands, low thousands. Uh, yes. Yeah, so so it's certainly everything you said is correct. Uh, I will say that um, you, many of your listeners may have heard uh, New York uh, is currently trying to hire a thousand contact tracers. So there's actually a job being posted that's being spread around among scientists and various other colleagues. So there are very substantial efforts to create this army of contact tracers that would be needed to enable this strategy. So that's definitely, um, that's correct. We would need many, but we are actually training those people now to put that into place. Um, and then as your readers or your listeners probably also know, there are enormous efforts to increase testing capacity, which is also required. And finally, you're also correct that we need to suppress transmission to relatively low levels to make this possible. Um, I will say that I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are about the possibility of a digital con digital contact tracing app um, <laughs> being used by Americans. And the reason for that is that uh, both Apple and Google are teaming up on this strategy, and they're actually working quite hard to develop um, an app for this that will preserve our, our privacy and actually only share our data. Basically, the, the data for our contacts will, will remain on our phone unless we become infected with the virus itself. And that um, is a very different strategy than has been used in some countries where the contact information on your phone is actually uploaded and shared with public health and government agencies, um, whereas the strategy that's currently being pursued both here and in one of the dominant um, groups that is pursuing this in Europe uh, via a strategy in which the data sits on your phone and does not be is not shared um, unless you become infected and then it shares the people that might have been near you for long enough that you could have possibly infected them. So I believe that a development of an app that does preserve our privacy um, uh, could actually be a quite effective and useful tool to help, as you said, in this otherwise very labor intensive um, uh, contact tracing strategy. Right, right. Well, it's a uh... I would be a little bit of a hypocrite if I did not download that app, just given the fact that I'm using all these map apps that are totally tracking where I go anyway. So uh, I'm, I'm already being tracked. So if I didn't, if I wasn't willing to get tracked for this, that would be very hypocritical of me. So 
Sign me up, I guess. Sign me up. Uh, but uh, very heartening to hear, as you uh, mentioned, that uh, folks are keeping the privacy question front and center as this progresses. Uh, just a couple more quick questions I want to get uh, before we round things out. Uh, the next one being the question of how quickly this virus is mutating. And here, I feel like we're really getting into the science science of it all, because I don't think that this is something that's been discussed all that much, at least not in enough detail for folks to get a real handle on it. So viruses are just like any other living entity. They're evolving over time. They're changing little by little. And uh, my understanding is that one of the big questions we have is how fast is this virus itself changing? Because that will tell us a lot about uh, whether or not we should ex- expect to see changes in its characteristics over time. And also, uh, it has implications for how long immunity will last and how effective uh, vaccines might be. So what are we learning so far about how quickly this virus is changing? Sure. So let's let's address that question, but let's not uh, let's come back afterwards to the question of immunity, because I think I'd like to revise my earlier answer to say that's actually probably my most important question is, what is immunity to this virus going to look like and how long is it going to last? So we'll discuss that in a minute. But the um, yeah, this virus is a single-stranded RNA virus. And so with those kinds of biological characteristics, that means that it's mutating um, and evolving relatively quickly, especially much quicker than uh, you know humans, bacteria, vertebrates, all these other things. So um, single-stranded RNA viruses mutate very quickly. Um, but just because the virus is mutating and changing doesn't mean, excuse me, just because it's mutating and it's changing its um, RNA sequence, it does not mean it's actually changing its functional um, attributes. And so crucially, we want to know um, as the virus evolves and changes, um, is it becoming more or less transmissible? Is it becoming more or less deadly? Um, Can it infect more or less different kinds of organisms and things like that, or different types of tissues in human beings? So those are the real types of changes that we're most interested in and um, trying to investigate. And I will say that uh, many of your listeners are probably have seen articles suggesting that there's many different strains of coronavirus out there, of this coronavirus circulating globally. Um, And I will tell you that from the virological perspective, so virologists that study this for a living, um, they actually consider there still to be just a single strain of the virus. And that's because although there are many different viruses out there that have slight genetic differences between them, there is no evidence that any of those have um, functionally different properties in humans. So there have been a few studies. So they're all acting the same. They're all basically acting the same in humans that we know of. Um, Mm -hmm. There have been a few cell culture studies that suggest some very kind of fine differences, but again, cell cultures are not human beings. And so um, while it's certainly possible that the virus could mutate and change a little bit, which could either increase or decrease either its transmissibility or its infectiousness, I'm sorry, or its deadliness, um, we have no evidence that that's occurred yet. Yeah. So so you teed up uh, the other question, uh, the question of what this means for uh, immunity and how long immunity will last. So uh, just uh, c- correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the reason that these are related topics is because if this is a virus that is mutating very quickly, that means that whatever immunity we have to it may not be valid 10 months from now because it's just going to be a somewhat different virus. Yeah. So there's two questions there. So when we think about immunity for coronavirus, um, we have two uh, things to look at. The first is, is how long does human immunity lasts. So how long does our own body recognize the same virus if the virus didn't change at all? And then might the virus evolve and become different enough that even if we had a a strong, robust immune system to the original virus, would it react to, say, a newly evolved virus? Um, 
And I will say that the short answer is we don't know the answer to this yet for this coronavirus. It simply has not been around for long enough to know. Um, we have data, a little bit of data for this virus um, from experimental animal infections. So in primates, there was a nice study showing that if you infect primates and then wait a few weeks and then try to infect them again, um, they actually are protected. So that suggested that at least in a primate model, which is not humans, of course, but uh, it's the best we have so far, um, uh, there was some protection that way. We don't know how long it lasts. The study did not uh, infect the primates and wait a year and then try to infect them again. The virus has not been around for that long. So we don't know how long lasting it might be and we don't know how well those results translate to humans. We do know from six other coronaviruses that actually have infected people in the past and that includes both four mild um, infections that frequently cause things that feel like colds to us, that cause the common cold, um, and two more severe viruses, the SARS virus, uh, the first SARS virus in 2003, and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus. Um, those viruses, there is immunity, and it's relatively effective immunity, but it only appears to last between one and four years. So for all six of those viruses, um, there is important protective immunity, but it's not lifelong. And so I think one of the biggest questions we have, especially not so much today, but going forward in the next six to 12 months is, is um, are people that have previously been exposed and recovered that have antibodies, are they immune? And if so, for how long? Um, and I think the data we have so far suggests that uh, human immunity appears to not be long lasting, even to the same virus. So an early experimental infection study on one of the mild coronaviruses actually had people get exposed voluntarily then came back a year later and got exposed again, and a fraction of those people actually were able to get infected again from the exact same virus. And that suggests that on the human side, there was not long-lasting protective immunity. And in addition, one might also ask, could the virus mutate, especially if it was in a population where our immunity was selecting on it to be different, meaning that a virus that was slightly different and didn't, wasn't bound by our antibodies, would have a higher fitness and therefore be selected in the population. That's also a possibility, but again, we have no data on that yet so far. So wouldn't the nightmare scenario then be, and I've, I've heard some people mention this, that the virus just becomes something recurrent, something seasonal that comes back every now and then uh, as, as soon as we've lost our herd immunity to it, it, it starts roaring back uh, once again every every year or so? So I think uh, without being too inflammatory, I think that most people believe that this virus will become a virus that we have to deal with in the long term. And that may mean requiring, um, say, annual vaccinations. And that may be the, the way that we move forward to address this. Um, as the fraction of the population that does get exposed and gets immune, either through a vaccine or through natural exposure, transmission will certainly go down substantially. Um, and that will limit the kind of size of epidemics we see each year. But without uh, repeated either vaccination or exposure, it is likely that we would see sustained transmission. So, um, so I think most people working on this disease believe that it's something that will be around for a long time, maybe for the rest of our lifetimes. Um, but certainly, we will have tools to greatly lessen the impact of, um, of, greatly lessen the severity of any of the epidemics that we're seeing right now. All right. Well, I think that that is a lot of scientific knowledge for our listeners to chew on for one day. All very helpful. Uh, just, I, I suppose we should not end on a down note. Uh, maybe uh, this this will uh, test your ability to think on your feet. Do you have any positive news that you can share with us? Any any bright spots in your research or other research that you've come across that could uh, give us some 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 bright spots to look to in the science here? Sure. I think for me, the bright spots are that um, the numbers of different tools and, and strategies that are being developed to effectively control this disease has been really quite remarkable. People are coming up with a lot of creative solutions and the combination of some of these creative solutions plus um, knowledge for really detailed understanding of how the disease works um, is enabling, uh, I think, both effective control strategies in the absence of drugs or a vaccine, but 
In addition to that, the enormous amounts of effort being put into both drug development and vaccine development means that we're going to have both of those tools available to us much, much, much quicker than we would for a normal disease. Um, so I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of uh, the timeline that is people frequently being given for the vaccine development of being the minimum of 12 to 18 months. And while that is probably still unfortunately an accurate estimate, um, uh, many of the standard procedures that we're using for vaccine development may be shortcutted by, uh, how should I say this, by much more risky approaches. So for example, and this has been considered uh, a number of times recently, but um, doing experimental uh, volunteer infections to test the efficacy of vaccines is not something at all we normally do, but it's being proposed for this virus because of both the probability that one might get exposed to it anyways, if there was normal transmission, and the importance of the disease is that under the very careful care of medical providers and probably in a population, meaning younger individuals that is at lower risk for severe disease, um, we may, let's be very clear, we may um, have some uh, volunteer testing of the efficacy of the vaccine in um, using uh, what are called challenge studies, where we actually purposely expose a person, um, obviously with their consent. And so that can greatly shorten the amount of time required to know whether or not a vaccine is, is effective, especially relative to the standard study, which is to literally vaccinate thousands of people and keep following up and hope to see a difference between them and a control group, which is normally a several, you know, six to 12 months process. So those kinds of creative approaches are ways I think we're going to get um, good, helpful tools much faster than we normally would. And therefore, I'm optimistic that the combination of both um, effective control strategies until we get a drug or a vaccine um, and a rapid de development of drugs and vaccines will get us to the end much quicker than normal. Mm, uh I've been asking myself since I, I heard reports uh, similar to what you were talking about a moment ago. I've been asking myself, would I be willing to take part in one of those studies? And I think I think I would. I think I would. Relatively young, relatively healthy, it would probably go okay. You're contributing to science, and I guess you're also meeting a lot of uh, very competent doctors who can help you out in a pinch. So there's, on balance, it seems safe-ish. Is is that something that you would undergo yourself? So I I think so. I would. In addition to that, I think one of the things that might be in place. Um, uh, before we start to do those, which would help a ton, would be to have a therapeutic that if things get relatively bad, you could use the therapeutic. So, of course, to test for whether the vaccine worked, we would um, expose a person with their consent um, and then see whether or not the virus is replicating and at what levels. Um, and because there's a delay between infection and disease, we would know relatively quickly, probably within just uh, five or six days, whether the virus was replicating well or not or whether the vaccine had been effective. And if it was not effective, we could basically immediately give that person a set of therapeutics when those are developed and in place to lessen the effects of disease. So I think the combination of if we can get a therapeutic um, that seems to be effective in the next, uh, say, just few months, then when these um, vaccine uh, vaccines that are being developed now become ready for these kinds of trials, then if we have the combination of those two, that will enable that strategy to be even more uh, safer than it would otherwise be. Wow. What a uh, what a time to be alive where this is something that is an actual dilemma that some people are facing. All right. Well, we will round it out there. Uh, Got to thank you a whole heck of a lot for spending some extra time with us and laying that all out. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. And these are very important questions for uh, us to try to understand as best we can, despite how complicated they all are. One last time, we have been hearing there from Professor Marm Kilpatrick. He is a professor with UC Santa Cruz's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, studying, as many other people are, this novel coronavirus. Professor Mom Kilpatrick, thank you so much. Happy to be with you. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next time. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.